0: This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivali. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Abrupt Future. This week, we have a different episode. We have two guests. First of all, we have Maz Rana the co-founder and COO of Knockree. And we have with us Maurice Forbes,
1: HR solution consultant
0: also at Knockree. So first of all, thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining. Thank you, Benoit.
1: Thank you, Benoit. Thanks for having us.
0: You gentlemen are working on a very interesting company, right? So Knockree is an AI skills-based assessment tool. It helped reduce unconscious bias, and God knows we need that. It helps shortlist the best fit job candidates to interview. All that during the early screening process. First question, first of all, Matt, can you tell us about... How how that AI system can figure out who should be shortlisted, and how does it increase diversity?
2: Thank you for that question, um, Benoit. It's quite a complex question, but I'm going to do my best at uh, taking a crack at it. And, um, you know, so I think maybe before going into greater detail on that, perhaps it would be helpful to provide just a little more context on what we do. And essentially what we've done is that we are, we have asynchronous AI-powered assessment that are science and evidence-based. And the way in which we deploy such assessments varies, uh, Benoit. It can be through video, written, audio, or a combination of the three. And we help with companies integrate various degrees of automation and assistance uh, that makes most sense to them through the screen to hired life cycle. And internal mobilization is also an area that we help with. So essentially what we're doing in our assessments is evaluating for predictive high performing skills such as empathy or growth mindset that are tied to the job. And it helps with shortlisting the best performing, and most diverse talent. And I think what's important to highlight, particularly for what we're planning on discussing today is that at Knockree, we're a team of machine learning scientists and industrial organizational psychologists that are on a social mission. And we're on a mission to help with diminishing hiring bias and improving diversity within the workforce and creating big positive impact. And this uh, mission, it permeates everywhere within our company, it's rooted in our DNA, and is a founding principle. So to answer your question, Benoit, of how the AI systems can figure who should be shortlisted and how does it increase diversity, What we've essentially done is taken the highly respected area of study called industrial organizational psychology. This is the science and prediction behind what we do and merged it with machine learning to provide a solution that bases a candidate or employee in the case of internal mobilization, eligibility solely on merit and not their gender, their race, their physical appearance, or even their sexual orientation as an example. and. One of the key technical milestones that we were looking to accomplish at Naukri was to build a technology for good. We took great lengths to ensure we're evidence-based and explainable in our automated assessments, and that means having an end-to-end approach to reduce as much bias as possible. And I'm going to try to make this relevant on uh, to Naukri, but also try to open it up and share best practices for machine learning algorithms and their specific use case in Talent and transformation in the hope that it helps educating some of your listeners. So, essentially, we know about blind hiring, right? So, blind hiring has some merit, and many times just removing resumes and making them blind is effective, but to a limiting degree, it's like a band aid solution. And what we challenge ourselves to do is to take it levels beyond just this and drive for transformational change with the uh, potential effects of disparate impact in mind. So, Benoit, there's four key areas to consider. And if some of your listeners are thinking about AI and implementing it in their teams, these may be important questions to ask. So number one is what is it that the technology looks at in an assessment or whatever it is contributing to scoring towards? And does it actually reliably have correlation to what is assessing? And is that predictive? So that's number one. Number two is data collection. So where is the pool of information that the technology is learning? coming from. Number three is what and who has the technology been trained by? Because there's always human, uh, there's always a human involvement here. And we want to consider how it's being implemented. And fourth, fourth, and certainly not least, by any means is what quality checks and assurances are being taken to reduce bias. So as we were building NOCRI and our technology, these are the four questions that we asked ourselves to make sure that we were uh, answering them well and executing on them Uh, to a great degree. And if I may, just like, you know, a common pitfall in machine learning is using historical data to train your algorithm. And this can perpetuate biases even further. We've seen this happen with Amazon and their resume screening tool, where it was disproportionately overlooking women candidates, Uh, which is why on our end, we spent a lot of time and resources to make sure that we get this right and have a proprietary data set that is full spectrum, and representative of cultures, races, genders, and accents. But we've been fortunate. I mean, we've deployed across 84 different countries. Uh, That's helped us tremendously in accomplishing this goal of diminishing bias. With that being said, though, Benoit, I feel like it would truly be disingenuous of me to say that we have all accents and vari- uh, variables accounted for in our data set. So like, let's say if someone comes to you, comes to you and says that they, as an example, just generally for like anyone that you're just talking to, if someone comes to you and says that they will help you eliminate bias entirely take it with a mountain of salt. So basically, as an example, let's say someone who is taking taken an assessment, they have facial paralysis or a very strong cockney accent. This is you know, relevant to Naukri. Um, We haven't been able to accumulate a substantive data set that allows for us to reliably assess people in these groups. So in NACRI's case, to help with mitigating bias, we've built Checks and balances in place as well to make sure that if the algorithm ever has to assess someone something it's unfamiliar with, it automatically flags the assessment so a person can review it themselves and take appropriate steps from there. So that's just the data collection process. I mean, there's also the training of the algorithms themselves involving gender and racially diverse subject matter experts to training and tagging. That is a key step to ensure you're mitigating bias and also evaluating correlations between, you know, your AI's recommendations and those subject matter experts, things like inter-rater reliability. But of course, that those are very important steps, but also having ongoing algorithmic and de-biasing checks is also essential in accomplishing the goal of reducing bias. So just one example, and I think I'll leave it there, is that uh, let's say you have uh, a protected group such as ethnic minorities, and you want to, if, if you can potentially predict back that a person is of ethnic minority due to their score, that tells us that there's a leakage in bias and will prompt us to identify that leakage and correct for that bias. So we run these type of algorithmic checks constantly, and it provides value towards what we call our normative data set that's pre-vetted for things like bias. So it's an end-to-end process, a holistic process um, that we made sure to kind of be involved with. So it stays true to our mission as a company to help with diminishing bias in hiring
0: because it's not like there's a single tool or mechanism or steps that that increase diversity right it sounds if i if i summarize you've been using a couple of different angle approach and method just to make sure that we don't replicate the biases that humans tend to have when we hire each other because you know we all tend to select people that look like us rather than the best person even though sometimes our intention are the best but the impact Act could be a bit different so it sounds like you're you're working hard at making sure that the system avoid this the same sort of bias
2: yeah absolutely and like you know today we've helped with even increasing diversity in the short list of candidates by like you know 25 percent with that being said to your point uh benoit is that there's no single solution out there that's just a silver bullet and asking uh, just this one one kind of option to help with diminishing bias and addressing it on an organizational level is truly short-sighted it Takes a lot uh, of effort from different uh, people uh, within the organization at different stages to make sure that we are upholding this type of responsibility. And
0: uh, Maurice, who's with mm-hmm. us today, and who, by the way, is a former football player with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. I- Thought I would highlight that. I think it's a pretty cool background to mix with HR. Certainly helpful for a complicated conversation with client. No I'm kidding. Okay. Um, <laughs> joke aside, in, in your work now as an HR consultant, you're helping the organization to to adopt and or create that type of solution and helping them to improve the diversity of hiring. But you know, let's not kid ourselves, especially in those days, you know, since the the, the killing of George Floyd and all mm-hmm. the new sense of awareness clearly we're not there yet but are there things that organization you think could do to to bring that
1: uh thank you for the question there's a lot of things that i believe that can be done and since the death of george floyd i've really been in this state where I've just been pondering during my free time on what things can be done to improve the situation, what things I can do to improve the situation because I spend a lot of my time in talent acquisitions, HR, and really talking with leaders in the domain about what their approaches are, I believe I've come up with a few strategies and as far as corporate responsibility to the future of work, I think it starts with companies investing in their local communities. Um, investing in communities where minorities and protective groups live, obviously it shows a it's a big statement being made to the employees and the colleagues uh, that come from these groups within companies. But when I think back to when I was a kid, having companies come in and expose themselves to lo- local groups and minorities and children of those groups allows them to see a world outside of regular programming so when i think back to myself i think about television and the only companies that i know really existed were companies that were in commercials companies that or or like sports teams like when i think about what i wanted to be growing up i wanted to be you know michael jordan i wanted to be the things that i seen on tv but i really didn't know about all these other companies and and what they do and the, just the possibilities for my own brightness for future and career paths I didn't understand any of that until really I got outside into university but the career one's career path and the learning and their ambition starts much earlier than college university So exposing children to these companies what you do you could end up investing in your own future as a company and hire the next big prospect 15 years down the line all because you showed them who you were early in their life and then, Thinking to the next step would be tracking diversity metrics within your your own company. Maz touched a little bit earlier on how we've affected the short list of candidates when it comes to interviewing. But when I've talked to some of our customers and some people just in the domain, not a lot of leaders. And not a lot of companies have accurate metrics on the incoming applicants. What's the racial makeup of who's coming into their company? What's the racial makeup of their own company? Um, Then this will help with so many different areas. Like obviously the talent acquisition process, but let's talk about learning and diversity programs and showing people within your company that we have these programs here to give you an opportunity to grow within the company and have opportunity to, 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 to better roles, to. I think that knowing the diversity metrics, and while you're tracking these learning and development uh, programs, you can look at the racial makeup and say, hey, um, Maybe we're not connecting with uh minority groups of our own company as much. What can we do to get better? Or what can we do to make these people understand that these opportunities are here? And then finally, extending uh, promotions and internal mobilization out to minority groups and people of color outside of the diversity officer role, I think is something that companies can do to really put their money where their mouth is and Take further steps than making state public statements, and and I I like
0: the the first point you make because we think about improving diversity at all of the steps in the employee life cycles, right? And you showed how all of these milestones are important. One interesting learning here for me is thinking also in reaching out before they even show up at the door, because as much as your hiring process can be unbiased, in the end, it's also dependent on who is in your talent pool so if your talent pool itself is not that diverse even an extremely fair process will not necessarily bring a true diversity of people so by reaching out to this community you increase the visibility of of the brand and start creating relationship beside your traditional network uh, because there's a good chance that these networks have a single
1: type or color Exactly. When we look at systemic racism, it's it's a big, big topic right now. And a lot of people are talking about conscious and unconscious biases. And they're talking about all these things affecting minority groups as far as government and legislation, as far as schools are concerned. But if systemic racism is so prevalent, it's got to be prevalent within the way companies approach the hiring process the way companies just approach their own workplace ecosystems in canada over 70 percent of the population is white same thing in in the united states i don't have the numbers on hand but i would love to know what the makeup would of a lot of fortune 500 companies are with understanding that then companies will have a better grasp on what areas they need to improve so they can create these systems that are more inclusive for everyone.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, just to add on what both of you were saying is that many times what we found is that people are fishing from the same pond and expecting a different result, right? So that that in and of itself is obviously an ineffective way of going about tackling things like diversity and inclusion. And, you know, what's interesting, though, is that diversity, inclusion, belonging, you know, these are like very easy words to just like rhyme off. They sound good together. And we've been using these words, particularly in the last like four to five years, to make ourselves feel good but now it's becoming to you know truly i feel like it's becoming beginning to rather ring hollow and people want to see action and tangible results especially given what is happening in the state of the world today and there's i feel like there's a lot of window dressing that's just happening even right now given the environment companies are trying to capitalize on the quote unquote trendiness of what is going on and they're publicly showing solidarity which is great and progress for some but as, you know, these protests begin to ease and people get off the streets, I feel like this fight is going to go to the workplace. And if you're a company making just like, you know, these statements right now, and they might not be truly what you believe or what you plan on enacting, you're going to be in trouble. And your work, your teams, they include black people and people of color, and they're going to expect better from you. They're going to want to see action and they're going to want to see results. And where you stand in this will define and affect your company going forward. So it's something very important to take into consideration. This isn't especially important. I feel like here at home in Canada, I feel like we have a problem of not acknowledging that there is a problem at home We think that we're different, which is not very true in a lot of cases. Yeah,
0: because we think that, you know, we're not like the other countries, we're better than some others. So we have, I think, what could be a false sense of security about our own systemic racism.
1: Yeah, to jump in there. I think that we've made tons of progress as a nation, especially when we, we look at The close proximity we are to the United States and some of the problems we have, there there, there are going on down there. But one of the biggest things for me that I noticed is the Canadian perception of we don't deal with the same systemic racial problems that they do in the States. And for me, is racism not racism? If not, is not racism, is, is not racism? Like, since when is there this spectrum? It's all the same evil, it's all the same bad. It, it all affects people negatively. Like we look at our own history with with, with um, racism. It's like the progress we've made, we've kind of used it as an excuse to sweep our own history underneath the rug. And we kind of use it to absolve ourselves from seeing opportunities to improve within our within ourselves. I have a huge family history when it comes to racism within this own country. Juneteenth, which is this Friday, is something that means a lot to me because my great-great-grandfather is an escaped slave. And some of the history that happened upon his arrival to Canada and some of my dad's history as far as Um, his experiences growing up in in Africville, Nova Scotia, which was a uh, small black settlement that was created because of the Underground Railroad and the influx of blacks that came into the country. I bring this up and my friends and colleagues don't even, has never even heard of this place. Like my dad grew up in an all black township, which is basically segregation and went to a a school, it's called the Shelburne School for, for the Boys, And it was a troubled boys school, but really that's just a pseudonym for, for minorities. So my dad would, to this day would call it the colored boys school. And there's like, this is a part of our history. There's things that go on with the Aboriginal community and which is a community that I'm also a part of because when my great, great grandfather came here and escaped slavery, he created, he started a family with a Aboriginal woman and they created like my history, right? So it's like, there's so many um, little things that we may not think is inflammatory racially, but it really is. We look at, like, uh, Doug Ford a couple, few weeks ago said we don't suffer the same systemic racism that they have in the States. And then have to, had to redact that statement a few days later. The RCMP chief, the exact same thing, she said the same thing, had to redact it a couple of days later. In Canada, we don't have national record for the number of people killed during encounters with police. We don't have a national record of police brutality. We don't have even a national record for cases of racism around the real estate and rental board. We've been seeing so many things on the internet as far as a teenager being arrested in the Peel region and having a neck put on, um, sorry, having a knee put on his neck. And this is after the death of George Floyd, or even just something as subtle as the Toronto son, who I felt took a negative aim at a local artist who's a rapper. He's black. He ended up being killed downtown Toronto. This young man's name is Houdini. And the son ran a headline Who Made Houdini Vanish? That's extremely insensitive. I couldn't imagine being one of his family members or his mother and having to read that. Would that, would that same headline have been run if it was a man of a different skin color? I'm not going to speculate, but it's, I think it's just, it adds to our history. And we've almost created this passive aggressive, polite way of slighting people of color. And I'm not just talking about, um, black people, just, A whole, just people in general have been feeling this way for a long time.
0: And last time uh, we talked, you were highlighting the fact that we tend to forget, but Amy Cooper, the person who famously called on the police because a black man was supposedly doing something wrong in, in Central Park, is actually Canadian.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, before all this happened, we all willfully said it's different in Canada, right? And Canadians are not racist. People didn't want to accept the privilege that many of us have that the black community isn't afforded. But to your point, Amy Cooper kind of shattered that entire belief. Like, we know the story. It happened in New York. She weaponized uh, racism. She stated that a black man was confronting her. She called the police, knowing well and good that what that meant and the position she was putting that man into. And that happened in America, but again, Amy Cooper is Canadian. And I feel like she's an ex- perfect example of Canadian-bred racism, where Amy knew perfectly the power that her privilege provided her, and she could exercise that power over a black man there's no gray area here like we all know privilege exists and we're just too scared sometimes to confront it and we're in denial because truthfully it hurts and it may cause guilt but this is like a necessary process of self-evaluation that we have to take because ignorance is not bliss if we remain ignorant we remain a part of the problem, and I feel like that's something that's tr- really needs to be uh, addressed within Canadian culture.
1: That's this is a really great point, right? It's 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 part of our culture. We like look, we a- Amy Cooper that incident gained national headlines, and that was a Canadian woman. Let's we can look at another Canadian uh, woman, Jessica Mulrooney. She just is in headlines right now for using her privilege and weaponizing her privilege against another woman in her industry who's black and just basically saying that she can just ruin her reputation and basically erase her career because of how influential she is. And the reason why she even uttered those threats is because she felt threatened by a generic tweet or a generic social media post for a call to action from um, people who have a platform, from people who have an influence. It's almost a blessing in disguise, in my opinion. I think a lot of people have been looking at 2020 as um, a year of change and looking at 2020 as a year when a lot of stuff hit the fan. But I'd look at it as a year where we've been shown so many opportunities for improvement and we've been chased to our homes and then and now we have to sit down and deal with these long standing issues that have been affecting us. Racism which has been affecting us for so long, we can no longer distract ourselves and um Personally, it's awoken something with me to where I see a correlation in my career and how I can help the issue with what I do every single day. And it's twenty twenty has truly been a blessing. To, yeah. to keep on, on the the theme of racism, Maz, I, I'd like to hear a little bit
0: more about the background that led to the creation of Nakri, because there is part of it that's still very that resonate with with our current context.
2: The inception of Nakri there were so many different things that like drove towards us beginning our company and why we started it and the main reason one of the greatest reasons was experiencing bias within the hiring cycle ourselves personally so Jahan Zabe, who is one of the co-founders here at Nockery, he was applying to jobs and he was you know, going all out. He was sending his resumes everywhere and he's pretty well experienced, well-rounded individual. Um, you know, I can personally vet for him. I've known him since grade nine and he wasn't getting any callback. And during that time, we were doing like a lot of research for a different company that we had while we were hiring. And I came across a few articles that it said that, you know, ethnic sounding names usually are correlated to having poor soft skills or poor communicational skills. And they're used as a means to be biased towards people, especially during the application process. So what we did was that we did a little bit of an experiment. And I mean, the time John Zip was like pretty Um, desperate for getting a job he had just left that uh, business that we had started together and he wanted to get back into the industry so we went through different names you know we tried Jason we tried James and within four to six weeks he landed a job at the same companies that he was applying to before with his original name and that was a stark kind of uh, reminder as to what the climate is. And slowly but surely, like, I mean, we wanted to make sure that this was not a problem that uh, only Jahanzib was experiencing or like, you know, we personally experienced. We went out, we talked to many people. We did our research, and this is a prevalent um, problem that is occurring within our organizations. So we linked up with our other co-founder, Fassel who's our CTO. He's a machine learning scientist and an industrial organizational psychologist, PhD. And we got together and we looked to solve this problem. And to me that
0: has that has always sounded like a a message or an exemplification of what we should be doing, right? Because if you if you take the mechanism that hire people, so the machine learning algorithms and the data use, if you expose the systems to a wide diversity of profile, in your case, you know, faces and expression and accent and all that, then the system become less biased. And I feel in a way it's a little bit like that with human beings. If you expose them to all kind of people, they will tend to see the humanity. They will tend to see broader than the pattern recognition that triggers when you see somebody that look like you and and if i come back to your first mention also maurice Mm -hmm. it's the same idea right if we expose people to different strokes then we tend to to be a bit less biased when we grow up i mean it's it's gonna take time to fix all that but if we can start from at the root right when people are young, when people get in a job, if we could at least remove these barriers, we could help people from different communities flourish.
1: Yeah. All of this stuff is bred out of fear, and the fear is bred out of just not knowing, as you said, Benoit. You take that fear away once you expose yourself more to diversity groups, and you expose your companies more to these communities, and in turn, the result of that will be a long lasting change where these people are now able to talk about your company comfortable within their environments and really just feel connected. And it's like, I could only imagine when I was coming up and I was living in low-income housing with my family, if we had some sort of community programs where um, like an IBM was around and they, or maybe they came into the school and helped us with computers or something, maybe I would have taken a little bit of a different career path. Not that I'm I'm mad at the career path I've taken, (laughs) but I can really just think about how that affects some children who really just don't know Mm -hmm. what the world is is out there. Luckily enough for me, I had athletics and I was great, great at athletics. So that exposed me to a lot of opportunities through university and stuff like that. But not everyone else can play high-level football like I can. So how do we solve that problem? Yeah.
0: And maybe while we are in these troubled time, and last question for you, Maurice, and then one last for you, Ma. So Maurice, you're coming from both a Black and a native background, right? Two communities that God knows, suffer in the, the history of North America and, and in our country. Is there a message? Is there something you feel like the silent majority do not get, do not understand about the reality that, that needs to be
1: said out loud? Hmm. I think that as far as the majority, the thing that they need to to know the most is, is that these issues are prevalent. They need to understand that just because they don't see it, there's a whole world going on outside their vision and... A lot of people, I feel, are having a hard time understanding what to do in these moments. And I think it's my personal opinion that the best thing you can do is connect with a colleague, connect with a friend, and listen to their story. And and through empathy and through love and understanding, you'll, you'll see their experiences. You'll see their parents' experiences. And I think when that happens, you'll know what to do. You'll know what actions to take because a lot of my friends, I feel when I talk to them personally, the thing that hurts them the most is being told that, you know, everyone matters and we, sh- we get told these ideologies that sound really good, but in reality are just not true. At the end of the day, when we look at the numbers, when we look at what we see on TV, when we even are honest with our own perceptions of people, we, can, we see that there is a lack of understanding and a lack of listening. And I think that's where it starts.
0: Thank you. This is a, this is a
1: powerful message to ponder about and repeat.
0: And Maz, my last question for you is where can we learn a little bit more about the work that you do, your thinking on diversity, you guys are very active, where can we find all that?
2: Yeah, um, for sure, Benoit. So, of course, you know, first, uh, great starting point is just uh, checking out the Nokri website um, and seeing, you know, what we're about, but uh, we're very active on LinkedIn as well as a company, you know, so feel free to search Nocree on LinkedIn, follow them personally, you can follow myself and Maurice as well, um, where we tend to put out a lot of content about things like diversity and inclusion, and how they relate to talent acquisition and talent transformation. So those would be great places to start.
0: Fantastic. So Maz and Maurice, I wanted to thank you for your time today, for all the, the thought you shared with us. Uh, we
2: really appreciate your presence. Thank you so much, Benoit, for having us. Really appreciate it and uh, had a great time.
1: Yes, Benoit, I appreciate you. Thank you for letting me tell my story. You bet.
0: This was About Future, a podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardy Valley and I thank you for your time.